Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. This week on Spin It, I had the privilege of speaking with a good friend of mine, Roger Brooks. Roger is the CEO of American Real Media and Publishing and three-time best-selling author. Roger was also voted one of LinkedIn's top 50 most impactful people. In this episode, we walk through Roger's journey and the incredible impact he's had in so many people's lives. We will learn how he became an author and Roger's astounding not one, not two, not three, but four best-selling books. We explore Roger's core values, including spreading awareness, empathy, authenticity, kindness, transparency, accountability, and gratitude through an abundance mindset. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you. Good morning, Stephanie. I've been waiting for this for weeks now. Yeah, I'm very excited. I I went maybe a little bit too crazy with the research and I started digging into all kinds of crazy things. So... (laughs) Look out. So watch out. (laughs) So I want to first start by talking about just writing and what drew you to this passion, who you are as a kid, who you were as a kid, and kind of going through your young life and, and what drew out this passion of writing for you. Sure. Well, that's great because that's exactly where it started. And I don't know how or why writing was part of my upbringing, but it was just something that came natural to me. I actually started with poetry and, you know, one of my English teachers, fairly young, recognized that. I entered a couple of contests, you know, in elementary school and middle school for for poetry and, and won a couple of awards for that. So I knew something was there. As a youngster, I was really focused on sports. Mm. Loved baseball, you know, felt I was going to make it to the, to the major leagues and was going to do everything in my power to make that happen. And, um, you know, as as you grow up as a teenager, especially in a small town like I did, you if you have any level of talent, it only goes so far. At some point, inevitably, it's going to catch up to you, unless you are certainly, you know, a superstar ahead of everyone in your in your peer group. But um, you know, so athletics and and poetry were my but no one really knew about the poetry. You know, I, can't, I kept that to myself and my immediate family. My aunt, my, my father's aunt, so it would be my great aunt, she was a writer. And she learned, you know, through my parents that I was writing. And she, you know, she lived in, she split her time between Savannah and Portland, Oregon. And she would call me and we would have discussions about it. And it was interesting. So as she got older, she always reminded me and said, look, continue to write. It's something that you could do for the rest of your life. So that was always in the back of my mind. So, so how did you pursue it? Like, so you, you did it in elementary school, you know, we all know high school sports gets tough and and you're, and you're doing kind of both of these things and still trying to grow up and to be this, you know, this amazing man. How, how are you doing it? How are you splitting your time? Well, look, I, I mean, the truth of it back then, I was spending very little time on the writing. You know, that was a, a hobby, who knows how many hours, maybe, you know, a couple of hours a month. So it was nothing 
you know, where I was spending, I was spending a lot of time on the athletics, mm. uh, on the baseball, you know, going to the weight room, doing all those things to improve, you know, all the way through high school and actually into a couple of years of college, I played baseball. But again, writing was always in the back of my mind. Now, at the same time, I was an entrepreneur. So I had my own lawn mowing business with my cousin. Mm. I started a t-shirt business and did that for several years. So, you know, like many kids, you have a lot of different <laughs> things going on. But the writing was always something I I enjoyed. And then it became, a, 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 you know, went to a point where if there was a death in the family or there was a special occasion, my family would ask me to write a poem. And, you know, it kind of put pressure on me. So, you know, if someone dies, three days there's a, a right. funeral and you have, you have to a have deadline. A, You're right, like, you have, have a deadline. deadline. <laughs> so it's like, oh my gosh, I have to write this poem. So that happened quite a bit. And then when my wife and I got married, I wanted to write a special poem for her and insert it into the, the program in the church. So I, I did that and it was called My Queen. And I took a lot of time to write that. And it's something that we reflect on almost every year because it was such a big part of, of our wedding and, and of our marriage. So that's, you know, that's kind of how it all started. So Roger, when you were in high school and going up through college, and, and, I, and I know you have many different avenues right now of, of where you split your time and spend your time, I should say, from a job to a side hustle to another company to like you have a bunch of things. Did you always know from a young age that you, maybe you didn't know the word entrepreneur, but did you always know that you were business minded and wanted to focus on having several different businesses? I guess I did. You're right. I didn't know the, the term entrepreneur or what that meant. But I grew up in a middle-class family, right? So we didn't have a lot. Many of my friends had more than us. So anything that I wanted to acquire for myself, I had to earn it, you know? So, and this is going way back, even, you know, I would shovel snow in the winter yeah. for my neighbors. I had a paper route. So even earning another, you know, whatever it was back then, right. 15 to $25 a week was great because I would be able to purchase the things that I needed. And then as I got older, you know, I, I figured that out like, okay, if yes, I could have a job, mm -hmm. but if I want to get a nice pair of shoes or sneakers or whatever it was, I would need to find a way to earn additional income to make that happen. So yeah, I guess I, I would say uh, to answer your question, I had, uh, I guess, a knack for being able to just do what I wanted to do, you know, in the time that I had to be able to acquire whatever it was that that was of interest to me. So very interesting. I know you have two children. I have four. And I was taking my son to school the other day. He's 12. Super, super insanely smart, like insanely smart. I'm not like a school kid, but like just really can look at something and figure it out. Okay. Yeah. And I was just having a very open conversation with him. And I said something to him and I was talking to him about my paper route and, and making barrettes and hair ties and stuff when I was younger, the kinds that you weaved in that the girls had in their long hair. And I was talking to him about buying supplies and, and taking the bus and things like that. And we were just having a very open conversation. And it was actually really interesting because later on that day, I picked him up from school and we were driving and he said, mom, when you said you had to buy it for your own things, what did that mean? And so I said, well, we had, we had nothing. So we, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't necessarily even call us middle-class. We had nothing. My mom was a single mom. My father had passed away when I was very young and my mom had to put our clothes on layaway for the year before 
until we got our clothes. So we didn't have, we, I didn't even know what Nikes were. We didn't have Jordache or Shimindifers or any of the things when we were young. We didn't have any of those things. But I remember the very first time that I got my own money and I went to the store with all of my own money to buy my first pair of, you know, whatever it is. It was so compelling that I remember it now. And, and my husband told him the same thing. My husband said, we had, our parents would buy us two or three pairs of jeans or two or three t-shirts. But if we wanted, you know, OP or we wanted Nikes or we wanted those were, we had to buy those. And that's how we contributed to our family. And it was so compelling for him. He was like, I don't even know what I would have to do if I had to buy my own cleats or my own futsal shoes or my own shoes or my own jerseys. And it was, it really affected him. And then when he saw how much each of those individual things were, he was like, how could I ever make that much money? Which leads me to one of the things that I read about you that was so incredible. And it was start before you're ready. And so I talked to him about this, Roger. I said to him, I said, well, you know, cause he was like, how would I even start a business? And what would I even <laughs> do? And I started talking to him about the initial fears of doing something and how to start. Walk our listeners through what start before you're ready means and where you came up with that concept. Well, again, it took me probably 25 years to figure this out or 20 years, right? So between 25 and say 45, I was extremely conservative. Although I was entrepreneurial and I did take action in a small way, I never did it in a big way. So I think we talked you know, offline one, you know, one day, and I was telling you one of the things that I did was if I wanted to get into a game, you know, if I didn't have a, the money to get into a, you know, a professional game or whatever it was, I found a way to do it. So, you know, I was a photographer and I had a camera and I would, you know, call into the office letting them know that I was going to be there to get credentials and I would get into a game that way. So I figured these things out, but honestly, it took me a good 20 years to really understand the concept of starting before you're ready, which is not to perfect everything. You know, starting the podcast was the hardest thing that I ever did because I was always holding everything, you know, all my cards close to the vest in that I didn't really want to let out who I am, you know, the fear of the unknown. So, you know, that I came up with that concept through listening to others, through interviewing people that you really do have to start before you're ready to start. Cause it's the only way it's like when we were kids and wanted to, you know, jump in the pool, but we were afraid cause we didn't know how to swim. We had to take that leap. You know, someone had to go in with us or push us in in order for us to swim on our own. So it's the same concept, I, I believe, when it comes to being an entrepreneur is to actually put content out there, do the, you know, test things out. Uh, we're going to fail. We're going to mm -hmm. correct that and then make it better. But it's never, ever, ever going to be perfect. So I have a question for you. When you put content out, do you ever feel like, oh man, that's really good. That's going to land. And it just doesn't land. I used to Stephanie. Okay. So, and this is another growth move. I believe is that at, at a certain point, I don't even know when it was, but I would say within the last year, I no longer think about worry or have concern about anything that has gone out. Yeah. Um, I used to, I used to like, you know, look at it and spend time, but now I put it out. It does what it will do. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm focused on the next thing. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, fully. I think that's well, so that I think that's so incredibly important because I, I really feel like you and I have spoken about this. Um, I was careful 
I was timid and I wasn't timid for me. I was timid because I never wanted to give the wrong message. I wanted to make sure I could impact and inspire people. And I was watching what everybody else was doing. And then I would go, oh, let me, I'll take a different perspective or I'll have a different spin on it. And as soon as I stopped doing that, as soon as I didn't think about it and I just went raw and right off the cuff, or as soon as I said, like I held an opinion, or if I didn't have an opinion, I would say, I just don't really have an opinion on this. I need to understand more or grow more. The minute I stopped being careful, the minute I just was like, open the kimono, and if I can help impact inspire or grow one person and I talk about my own story and the things that my failures my loyalty the things that really mattered to me everything I stopped looking I never looked I didn't care about likes I didn't care about who commented it didn't matter to me other than just support support others but once that happened things just blew up and they were like gosh I never thought about it like that thank you so I was wondering if you went out of the gate like that and started just being really raw and open or if it took you some time because it took me some time it definitely took me some time and there was one thing I learned along the way and I really didn't even understand what this meant at the time and and that is um, to become vulnerable yeah when you could become vulnerable and you let your guard down and you're able to speak freely people understand People know when you're putting on a facade yes. versus being genuine. You may be able to hide it for a certain amount of time, right? but inevitably people will see through that. So the, I found that the more down to earth, the more vulnerable we are, the more we're willing to share and be genuine and transparent, all mm -hmm. those you know buzzwords that we hear, I feel the more confident we are as individuals. And then people feel that energy yes. and that that's what gets them to connect with us is saying, oh my gosh. You know, Stephanie is awesome because she's herself. Right. Even though I don't know her, you know, someone looking at your polls, mm -hmm. I feel like I do and I feel like I can connect. And I feel that story she just shared is something that I could relate to. So that, you know, that's one thing. The other thing as part of that that I found is that in our heads, and I think this is really important for people who are trying to grow their own personal brand as an individual, in our heads, we have a perception that we might be bigger than we are. And I say this not to say, don't think that you're big. I think it's good, but more to say that every touch point that we have is an opportunity for impact, but it doesn't matter if it's big or small. So if you only get say three likes uh, on a post, don't be disappointed with that because you never know one of those three, may be people, you know, someone that really needed to hear that message today, then that three becomes 30, which could become 300. So it's a numbers game, you know, in my opinion, but if, if you could remove yourself from the vanity, I guess, of the, you know, the message that you're trying to make, everything changes for the better. And you could kind of just let social media, podcasts, YouTube, whatever you're working on, take on a life of its own. So Roger, I feel like that's so important. So I feel like what you just said, our listeners really need to understand. It has to be authentic. It has to be vulnerable and don't care about the likes. For me, Roger, I had something completely different. I never thought I was big. I always thought I was small. So I, I didn't want to, I, I was like, people go, Stephanie, share your story. I'm like, oh my gosh, so many people have had it so much worse. No, nobody cares about that. Or they would say, tell your story about how you were the youngest VP. And, you know, and I was like, no, I don't, it's irrelevant. I, it doesn't matter. I just want to impact and inspire the people that are around me. So I thought of myself as very small. So when I got three likes, I was so happy. I was like, oh, great. I helped three people. When I got 3,000 comments, I was like, 
how am I going to get back to everybody? No, don't anybody touch that. I want to respond. And, and it was, it became out of control for my head, for my head. I was like, how do I respond and touch? Like you said, impact, inspire, touch point, just like you said, Roger, touch point, every one of those people that have commented, and then it was 5,000 comments. And I was like, ah, yeah. so it was, it was very big for my head and it was really hard. It's remarkable. And I, I do think it could go either way, right? We could yeah. feel we're too small or we're too big, whatever it is. But the result, I believe, is the same. And the way we approach it is the same because, and I, and I think we need to take that same concept of social media into the real world. I think that's where a lot of people absolutely well. It's so important, whether you work in a job or a career that has 10 people in an office or thousand people or whatever it may be, every interaction is important. And we take that for granted sometimes. And and it could be at the grocery store or especially at home. I think at home is the most important. And again, it took me time and I'm still learning each and every day the importance of our interactions, being present with people, listening, you know, not speaking over people, all of these things that, you know, unless we're conscious of it, we may just kind of go through the motions and and not really pay attention, which could be detrimental to you know a marriage um, relationship with your with your children, your parents, uh, as well as your coworkers. I think that that is so incredibly invaluable what you said because I know for me you know, we're busy. I mean, we, you and I, Roger, we talk about how many hours are truly scheduled, right? Like they're just scheduled. And for me, I know I ran the management consulting firm for 16 and a half years. When I started the human consulting firm, it was a big going online SEO, social media. It was a big thing for me. And so I was very distracted at home. And I remember my little one saying to me, do I need to schedule something? <laughs> and that for me was like a knife through my heart. And so I made a conscious effort to when they walk in. Now, I will say, give me one second. I'm just finishing an email or I will say in 15 minutes, please come back. I will say that. OK, but I shut everything down. My laptop goes down. My phone goes on the desk and I turn around and I am so incredibly present with them because it starts at home. It starts with how you treat your relationships at home and how you treat your children and how they see you interact. If they're seeing you interact and be on and happy and engaged and impactful with clients, but you're not at home, what message is that? Exactly. And to me, that that is the most important role that we could take is at home. Now, everyone's at a different point in their life, even people listening to this interview right now. So, you know, if you're younger, it's the relationship with your siblings and your parents right? As you yes. get married, it's your spouse and then your own children. And then as your parents get older, the relationship with them and, and those around you. So it never really stops. <laughs> there might be some shifting as you, you know, move on through your years. Mm -hmm. But wow, that's one thing that I really wish I took more to heart when I was younger. Because Absolutely. as they say, time goes by fast and, and you can't get those years back. It doesn't. And that, you know, that's the one thing that I constantly talk to the kids about. Like, no matter how, what it, you guys are fascinated with the billionaires and the Elon Musks and the Richard Branson, and, and I get that and I want you to learn from them. But no matter what, no matter how well off you are, no matter what you have, you can never buy more time. So be careful in how and who you spend it with. So that's an absolute intrinsic lesson. I was reading about the sales conference in 2008 and the very first book, uh, The Power of Loyalty. What stirred this emotion for you to do this? And tell me about the book. Sure. 
So I had been following uh, this writer, Jeffrey Gittimer. He's known as the king of sales. He put out a book called The Little Red Book of Selling, maybe in the early 2000s. I didn't stumble upon it. My brother-in-law actually gave it to me maybe around 2006, 2007. So I started following him, reading all. He had a whole series of books. So I, I read all his books. And um, he was hosting a sales conference down in St. Pete, Florida that I went to. It was a weekend long conference and it was really great. I mean, there was a lot of rah-rah and those kinds of things uh, in the room, which was all awesome. But one of the things he said that really stood out to me and others in the room is that as a salesperson, we're all in sales in some way, but if you want to stand out in your industry, if you want to get people to call you instead of you having to, to cold call them, the most impactful thing you could do is write. Either write articles for a trade magazine that may be associated with your industry, or even better, write a book. So as I mentioned earlier, writing has always been in, in the back of my mind. At that time, I had written a, a few local books um, honoring some people in our local area, more of a coffee table style book, but I never really endeavored on writing an actual book. So I was in the loyalty and rewards space at that time, back in 2008, and I made a promise to myself that when I left that conference, I was going to go back and start my book. And I did. But, you know, back then we didn't have all the tools that we do now. So it was a lot of trial and error. It was doing a lot of research on, you know, how do I write a book? What do I write about? And just I, I developed my own formula and actually used Jeffrey Gittimer's book as somewhat of a blueprint to say, I like this style of writing. You know, I want to do something similar. So I took that in, but I obviously wrote my own content and it took a while, it took about six months, but I got it done. And then, you know, as luck would have it, I sent the book out to several publishers and Entrepreneur Magazine picked it up. So out of the gate, it was a great way for me to start as a writer. The book, you know, was in all the Barnes and Noble stores and, you know, online books were just starting to become more popular. And, um, you know, I just, I knew this is something that now that I did it once, Mm -hmm. I could do, you know, as my aunt said to me when I was young, I could do this for the rest of my life. Wow. So what was the, what was the initial, I like to talk about the emotion of it because once it's done, everybody just kind of closes. Like I was, uh, I was watching yeah. an interview with Brene Brown the other day and she, when she finished, she was talking to me about what she did that night with her husband and like all of these different things. Okay. What did you feel after it came out and you started getting initial feedback? Yeah. Well, I'll never forget the, you know, the publisher had sent me a FedEx package with a book and just opening that package to, to feel it and see it and go through the pages to say, oh, my gosh, you know, this actually came to fruition. The emotion of that, you know, it's, it's hard to even explain because it was incredible. Then I would do a lot of business trips. So if I was in Florida or wherever I might be and walk into a Barnes and Noble store and see the book on the shelf, that was a feeling that you know, is you just can't, it's hard to explain again until you're in that situation. I think the most impactful thing is that I would go to these trade shows and a couple of the trade shows picked up the book to sell right there, you know, at the trade show. And, uh, you know, I was asked to speak at a, at a few conferences and whatnot. So that became even more important because now it was integrated into my work and people started to recognize, okay, 
not only does he work for this company, but he also wrote a book on the subject. So therefore, I became a resource to a lot of people on the topic of loyalty and uh, and rewards programs. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to, Jenna's going to kill me because I'm going to totally go off script. <laughs> Will you solve one problem for me? Sure. Okay, so when I'm talking to clients, when I have my, my clients, athletes, celebrities, high wealth individuals, um, entrepreneurs, well-funded companies, CEOs, okay, those are those are mostly most mm -hmm. C-suite, I should say. And they all say the same thing to me. So I'm going to tell you what they say to me, and I want you to give me your very, very best advice, okay? Yeah, I could write for half an hour, but none of my thoughts are organized. I have no idea how I would even begin to organize it. So I say, so let me, let me ask a question. So you're thinking that you need to start your book from the beginning and go through the very like succinctly all the way through in organization like organized answer that question okay so I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because this inevitably comes up in every single conversation with someone who hasn't started yet right they're thinking about it the very first step is to craft a very thoughtful outline so that's where I'm good so I you know I do this so much now that if we were you know on our first call yeah. our first you know uh, consultation you would be talking i'm asking the questions i'm at my whiteboard and you're just you're just speaking and getting it pouring, out there pouring pouring out the information i then you know after that call i put it in an email and an outline and say okay because that's me giving to you to say you you really may not know how to get started now you could probably do the outline yourself but that's me giving to say look let, let me give you a little boost here I'm going to create this outline for you. Now, when you get it back, now you have something to work with. It may not be exact, may not be, you know, the way you want it, but, but at least you have something now that you could start moving around and say, oh, you know, I said that, I forgot to say this. And that's what starts the process. So the very first step in writing a book is you have to have a great outline. You cannot start without that. Now, is that, is that great, five subjects or is that 10 subject? Is that like, how is it? Is it five? Is it 20? How many is it? Well, typically we have, at, by the time we start the outline, you may have two or three book ideas, right? So oh, now okay. we're going to narrow it down to the book idea. So we know that. Okay. So we're, we're going to write a self-help book, you know, and it's about your experience and your method for doing that. Now I'm going to talk, now I'm going to ask you questions. Okay, Stephanie, how do you do this? And then my questions will prompt your answers. And it's basically like a story mapping session so that we get that out. Now, that's a draft of the outline. That's not your chapter outline. It's just thoughts and ideas that will be molded over a couple of weeks that will get it into a full outline, including the chapter outline, so that by the time you start, think about this, you're going to have chapter one with you know four headings these are the four items i'm going to cover in chapter one and under each heading you're going to have three or four bullets so there's never a lack of of content you're following a blueprint that you initiated so you have all the information in your head so it becomes not easy but you should be able to you know freely write about something and then you may be inspired as you're writing chapter one, you already have the outline in front of you. So there may be something in chapter eight that you go ahead and you and you write about that point in chapter eight and then go back. So that's kind of the method that I use. And it just works because it's you providing the information to me that in turn turns into this outline 
that you take ownership of. That is so valuable because for me, I would start and stop and start and stop and start because I, it wasn't organized. I couldn't organize my thoughts. And just like you said, you, you, you literally, it was almost like you served it to me. I would say something and I'd be, gosh, that's really, really good. But then that would trigger something and I'd be like, oh, is that chapter seven? Is that chapter nine? And then I would just quit because I would feel so overwhelmed of, I don't even know where this fits. Does anybody really care? Is that a story? Is that a fact? You know, I was really daunted, I, I would say. So I think that that's really helpful for our listeners to reach out and actually create this process with you. Tell me about your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, so back in 2017, I had been listening to London Real. It was started by Brian Rose. He's an American um, successful banker. He was on Wall Street. He moved to London back in, I don't know, early or mid 2010 or 12, something like that, became unhappy and he quit his job and he started this podcast called London Real. The whole idea behind London Real was to interview people and get to the essence of who they are as, as a person. And he had on, you know, some pretty amazing guests even early, early on. He got onto, um, you know, some really popular podcasts himself, himself, and it just blew up. So, I had received an email at the same time I was thinking about podcasting from Brian because I was on his mailing list. Of course, it was a mailing list email, but it said that he was starting his own program. Learn how to podcast. It was called Broadcast Yourself. So I invested in that program. It was an eight-week intense, very similar to David's. Actually, David's is built off of Brian Rose's concept of you know, learning how to truly become a podcaster. And back then, even four years ago, there, there wasn't all the technology we have today to make it like this, you know, very platform we're on to make it a little bit easier for podcasting. So I took it very serious. And on the last call of the eight weeks, Brian Rose made an announcement and he said two things. One, if you want to use the real brand in your name, you're able to do so. Uh, so I chose American Real, which is nice because it has the backing or, or I guess the relationship to London Real. A lot of people know that brand. But the next thing that happened, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't aware of. And Brian said, I'm choosing someone today to come interview me in London. And he says, I, I'm choosing Roger. And um, I was taken back. So within two weeks, I was in London and set up to interview Brian Rose live, you know, on his show. And that really opened the door for me as, you know, to kick off my podcast. And uh, I've been doing it ever since four years ago and, uh, you know, have about 200 interviews now. Um, What's the premise? In, in the books. Uh, the, the tagline is everyone has a story. So very similar to what we're doing today, you know, having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, allowing the guests to speak about their story, and it may be related just to their work sure. or it may be, you know, might be similar to today where you talk about a lot of different things. That's part of that person's story, but really giving someone the platform and the opportunity to speak freely. And I commend you because this is uh, the type of conversations that I love to have with my guests. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate everything you're doing for yourself and your audience to bring and, and shed light on, on those wonderful guests that you bring to your show. Roger, you make it so, so easy. So <laughs> let me ask this, Roger, what's the essence of you? Hmm. You know, I think when you break it all down and again, it took me a lot of years to get here. It's kindness. You know, it's, you know, I started this, this post once a week called kind magazine and I put, I 
randomly pick someone that I put on the cover. I think kindness is the most valuable trait we could have as as a human. Everything else can revolve around it, good or bad. But if you have kindness in your heart with every interaction, then you're probably less likely to have an argument, confrontation, gossip, judgment, all those things that if you're not thinking about kindness can easily creep in. And we've all been there, right? So again, I've, I've tried to improve as a person, as a father, as a husband, as a son, you know, all these things, keeping kindness with you at all times. So if, if you were to break down, that's what I, you know, strive to be. I'm, believe me, I'm far from perfect. But when it's there, you know, when it's on your shoulder all day long and that becomes part of your brand, then, you know, it, it makes you feel good. It makes the day uh, really flow nicely. It makes your interactions really positive. And, um, you know, you could close your eyes at night and, and say, okay, you know, I helped some people today. I still have more work to do tomorrow, but you could, you could close your eyes and, and know you did your best uh, each and every day. Roger, you are such an incredible inspiration. Like I said, humble, sweet, genuine, so warm, and just so willing to help others. We like to end our conversation with one question, which is what is your biggest obstacle into opportunity? Biggest obstacle into opportunity? Mm -hmm. I would say scale. Scale is not easy to figure out. And, you know, if you think about program that we talked about, so I want to try to help as many people write their first book, right? How do I scale that? How do I scale that up into opportunity, not only for myself and my family, but those that I'm coaching and helping? And it's a hurdle that, you know, I'm close, right? I'm, you have spurts of like, okay, we're doing great. And then you end up spending, you know, $10,000 on Facebook to see that, you know, you don't have any clients. Or in, in my case, you lose your Facebook account uh, for no reason whatsoever. So there's all, there's, the one thing I found is that no matter how good you are or how much good or goodness you try to bring into the world, the more goodness, the greater the resistance. So I really commend our leaders like, you know, the Elon Musk that you mentioned and the Bransons that you mentioned, where it's not easy, folks, to rise above mm -hmm. all of this noise that, that we are encounter with every day. The more good you do, the more resistance. It's those that could persevere and not give in that are ultimately going to succeed. I'm still in the midst of it. I'm not there yet, but I'll tell you, I'm trying at every hour of every day to overcome all this resistance. And maybe, you know, it'll, it'll never happen, but there are glimpses of hope when you say, okay, I'm on a great podcast like this, or I helped a great client yesterday, or I have a call coming up today that I'm going to help someone new. So it's the thrill of it, it's seeking, you know, that ultimate achievement of success, whatever that means, but in the process, really enjoying it, staying present and um, just really enjoying what you do. Roger, this has been so incredible and you are such a beautiful person and kind and just so incredibly warm and genuine and generous. Where can our listeners find you, find out more, find out what you're doing next? Where can they just check you out. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it, Stephanie. Thank yeah. you so much. And the feeling is mutual. And I can't wait to see where our friendship leads in the future, because I know there's going to be some things there. Best place is LinkedIn. I, I really love LinkedIn. That platform has changed my world. 
Um, I owe a lot to LinkedIn and those that are there and who have helped support me. So it's easy to message me through LinkedIn. All my contact info is there. Of course, we have the AmericanReal.tv website if you want to look at some of our past episodes. And I know we have you coming on the show real soon, so I can't wait to interview you as well. And once again, thank you so much for all the time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.